welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name is Stefan Griffin. I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Craig Ritchie and Dr. James Robson. So welcome to this podcast, gentlemen. Um, I was hoping that we could start by asking um, you to introduce yourselves to the listeners, please. Uh, my name is uh, Craig Ritchie and I'm Professor of Psychiatry of Ageing uh, at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and also director of a new organisation up here called Brain Health Scotland. And I'm James Robson. I'm chief medical officer for the Scottish Rugby Union. Um, as part of my role, I'm also national team doctor. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the BGSM podcast. Um, we're gonna just gonna go, we're gonna go straight into it. So, um, brain health. Um, Craig, maybe if we can ask you to start by just outlining what does this term mean because I'm sure listeners will have seen that term banded across social media across journals etc so yeah what what's meant by brain health you know that's it's actually that's a very very good opening question in many ways I mean I think I'm going to answer it in a very cheeky way it's actually having a healthy brain um, and one of the, the the things I've noticed over the last few years since we've been using this term is something which the which the public can wrap their arms around really quite quickly. And where we have more challenges explaining what brain health means is to sort of medical community, because they're always asking things like, well, is stroke in or a stroke out? Is motor neuron, you know, motor neuron disease in or is motor neuron disease out? Where's depression and mood disorders fit? So we're trying to kind of, I guess, get before the medical by having a healthy brain. The assumption is that a lot of those illnesses um, may not start in the first instance. If they do start because you've got otherwise healthy brain, then you then you're you're, you're going to have a more sort of just, a better prognosis from a more benign course of illness. And the way I often sort of talk to the public about these things is that the brain, despite its all of its complexities and and, and what it does and the, the amazing things that the brain can do, is actually a reasonably straightforward organ. You know, you give it a, a decent blood supply, and if that blood supply is you know, got a good amount of oxygen in it and all the right nutrients and dare say it, you don't damage it too much with, you know, toxins or bashing it, you're going to have a healthy brain. So, and then the other part of the equation, which we'll probably come on to later, is, you know, you've got to sleep well because when you sleep, you clear all the, the gunk out of your brain that's built up during the day. So brain health, we, did, we almost like it because we don't need to define it. I just tried to, because it's something which you can just understand off the bat rather than necessarily thinking in a very sort of clinical way. So a very long answer, I think, to a very short question. <laughs> no, not at all. I think this is where we can look to bring you in, James. Um, from a sporting perspective, why is this relevant now? Why is it so important? I, I think largely um, what we're seeing in, in the public domain, what we're seeing in the medical domain is the concern over contact sport and possible repetitive head, head injury, both in the form of, say, concussion, you know, um, recognisable brain injury, or indeed in the sort of subconcussive form. And we now know, thanks to many more experts, more, more expert than myself, certainly, that if we can provide an optimum environment for the brain, if we can maximise the, the things that help to keep the brain healthy, then we have a good chance of achieving a balance because, you know, life is about a balance and particularly we want to emphasize the good points of sport, but we also know that potentially there are downsides, you know, 
the obvious thing are the injuries that we see on a day-to-day basis, people twisting their ankles or, or twisting their knees. But without the brain, really, we don't have the person and we don't have the, the player. And so it's gained more and more importance over the years that I've been involved in. And the opportunity to work with the likes of, of, of Craig was just too much to uh, pass up. So that, that's where I'm coming from. Brilliant. And I think that leads us nicely, Craig. You said we'd talk about it later, but I think we may as well go into it now. Um, how to provide a, the optimal environment for the brain. Um, obviously, we're going to come back to talk at the end about maybe uh, where listeners could find some educational resources around this. But um, I know some of the one of the concepts that you've brought in as part of some of these educational resources is uh, some of the modifiable um, risk factors for brain health. So I wonder if you want to kind of t- touch on those. Sure. No, I think, you know, the, the starting point for this for, for many people was something called the Lancet Commission Report, which was published in 2020. And that was brought together a lot of evidence that there said a lot of us working in this field from an epidemiological and a clinical perspective had kind of known about for quite some time about what risk factors were for, for dementia in later life. But what the Lancet Commission Report did very nicely was kind of bring it all together into one place. And that was a very good, if you like, communication tool. Um, and those risk factors um, were sort of identified, not just in terms of how strong a risk factor they were, but how common they were in the population. And that's where they came with this top 12, if you like. And one of the things that we learned from that, well, two things we learned from that. Number one was that um, these risk factors apply, dare say, across the life course. They're not just things that happen to people over the age of 65. So there are things within that, which if you modify the risk factor, say in early adult life or in midlife, you've got a good chance of reducing your risk of dementia in the future. And they thought it was about 40% of all dementia cases were due to these modifiable risk factors. And the second thing was that a lot of those risk factors were common to other conditions like heart disease, diabetes, um, you know, um, et cetera, mood disorders as well. But there were some that were unique, like social isolation, stress, hearing loss, et cetera. But I think for us, what we, we looked at, I said, well, look, even though some of these risk factors might be common to other chronic conditions, as James was just saying, brain's the most important organ in your body. And if people understood that there were things that you can do to maintain brain health, they might be motivated to do that because they want to look after their brain, maybe more so than they would because they want to look after their, say, you know, their, their, their diabetes or their heart or what have you. Uh, the final thing I would say on this issue is that um, a lot of people have got a very strong family history or awareness of dementia. You know, it's so common when you, when you, when you give a lecture and ask people if they've got any family history of dementia, you always find out a third or you know, quarter to a third of the people put up put, putting their hands. So it's a salience. There's an importance to this that may not necessarily, how many people have history of diabetes or that might not be so common. So I think those are the sort of the, the, the starting points of saying, well, with a brain health clinic or, or brain health public policy, can we inform and educate the public and these patients about brain health and what they can do to modify potentially the course of disease if they have it. James has touched on the role of uh, recurrent head injuries, brain trauma uh, within those uh, that kind of ri- those risk factors. Um, from a practical perspective, what are some of the things you are encouraging athletes or general, you know, just the people in their kind of um, you know, people as they're growing older, what are you encouraging people to do at a practical level? 
that... Certainly from, from, you know, the sporting point of view, you look at the work that um, governing bodies, unions, etc. are doing in, in, in rugby, for instance, trying to limit the amount of contact work in a, in a, in a training week, um, trying to recognise better um, concussion and then have a, a, a plan to manage it. You know, when I first started, it was recognise the concussion if you were lucky uh, and then three weeks off, no, no instruction as to what you did with your three weeks and then back, back you come. Now, uh, you know, we see it in social media all the time. People, lay people, are recognising concussion um, very frequently. So if you recognise it, then you remove them from the field of play and you give them a graduated return. So it's, it's, it's that aspect in sport. I think the, you know, the concept of limiting the subconcussive um, episodes is very important, um, and that's where you know new technologies are coming in, the likes of the instrumented mouth guards. Video technology has been around for a long time, so you're able to delineate the kind of work and the amount of work that people are doing. And then, most importantly for me, it's the education. You know. Uh, brain brain health is a matter for everybody. Concussions a matter for everybody, and that doesn't just include us as medics. It includes the athletes themselves. They look after each other. Um, they look out for for one another. It's their families. It's their friends. It's the officials. It's the guys that make the the, the rules. You know, it's multifactorial. We've all got a part to play in brain health. I think that's such a, a lovely sentiment and a lovely message. Um, Craig, in terms of some of these other modifiable risk factors, what are the what's the low-hanging fruit that you would look for everybody in the population to be doing? Well, I think obviously sleep better. I think sleep is probably one of the easiest things that, that we can do. And we, we now know so much more about how sleep is very restorative for many you know, parts of our body, if you like, but specifically around, around the brain. Um, I think, you know, when you sleep, like I was saying earlier, you, there's something called the glymphatic system, which is draining a lot of the proteins that, that would become toxic if they accumulated over time um, from the brain overnight. So the, the, the seven hours of sleep is probably something that's incredibly important for our brain and something, dare say, a lot of us don't really do very well attaining. Um, so sleeping well is really good. But, but I think the other thing, building what James was saying, is that, you know, my role, if you like, with the brain health clinics isn't so much to sort of, you know, to have a, uh, 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 you know, what's happening during the game is, you know, other people are working on that to reduce the exposure, if you like, in terms of head injury. But obviously people who've retired from the game can't go back and unplay the game. And what we were finding, as I was talking to retired rugby players and football players in particular, was how they, when they retired from the game, some of those risk factors for dementia um, you know, alcohol use, diet, uh, obesity, dare say, you know, high BMIs, but also interestingly, um, some, you know, the, the social connectivity that they got while playing the game in a club in particular, when they retired, they sometimes lost that and they didn't have that same connection and social isolation or lack of social connectivity is also seen to be a risk factor for dementia in later life. So there are things in the players once they've retired and as they're retiring, we could probably do a lot to maintain their brain health of course, in the brain health clinics, see them after that retirement and just you know go through all these risk facts and see 
are any presence? And if so, you know, can we do something to try and address that? Sure, and I guess if we've got team physicians, or even if, you know, we've got sports scientists, physios who might be listening, working with athletes who might be transitioning out of that kind of sporting environment. Um, it sounds like from what you're saying, it's a case of obviously it's by then probably too late from a kind of um, brain trauma perspective to do much. But it sounds like you would be encouraging that population to be advising their athletes to sleep better, ensure they're physically active, have a you know, a medita- Mediterranean diet or close to that as much as possible um, and trying to almost be proactive in maintaining social connectivity um, which, I, which I think it'd be very interesting to see how many how many people are, are doing that um, and, I, and I guess which takes us nicely onto some work that both of you are, are doing at BT Murrayfield up in Edinburgh um, which might provide a nice template and a kind of a nice story about how you can engage with those, those athletes so your kind of Wednesday clinic you've got up at, up at BT Murrayfield. Do you want to just explain what you might be doing there and how people might be able to apply that in their clinics to athletes transitioning out of sport? Yes, yeah, so I'll, 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 I'll be as quick as I can. I mean, all that I just said to you about brain health, we were running um, through NHS Scotland, through Scottish Government, maybe three or four years ago. And I happened to be on a, I can't remember even how I was invited onto that RPA call with the James you were on. But I was just presenting this about what we were doing for the general public. And James then phoned me after and said, look, you know, there's a there's a population here who are worried about their brain health who retired from rugby that we should talk. And we did. And then, you know, a year or so later, we've, we've set up this clinic. Um, so it is actually, if you like, a standard brain health clinic that we're rolling out across Scotland for the general public. It just so happens we've initiated this one in, in Murrayfield um, sooner than, than we've been able to do so in the NHS so far. Um, but it's built around three things. It's built around, number one, risk profiling. So going through all those different risk factors we've been talking about in a very systematic way. We've got access to some really cool tests for early disease detection. So blood tests for amyloid, um, brain imaging, you know, cognitive assessments, et cetera. And then you bring those two things together to put in place what we call a personalized prevention plan. And so it's a very comprehensive assessment of these players around risk factors, and what the brain is doing or what's happening in the brain to then work with the individual on their own personalized prevention plan. That sounds brilliant. And, and James, with these athletes, I imagine all this well received in your in your experience so far? O- overwhelmingly, yeah. Um, um, so so to be honest, Stefan, um, even this afternoon I've had a couple of um, direct contacts. We're just in the process of sending out invitation letters to the, the first tranche of uh, ex-athletes. They may still be athletes for, for all, all I know, using our best administrations of finding them on various databases. And we're hoping to uh, get, get them appointed to the clinic as best we can. Um, sadly, I think we're going to be a victim of our own uh, success because I, I, I feel we're going to have too many people looking to attend the clinic. With it, you know, on the same day, I had five ex-international rugby players phone me up personally. Um, people have no problem getting hold of me. <laughs> I don't move far from Murrayfield much much of the time. And, and I think just, Stefan, just quickly, just to, to know that anybody may doubt this, but this clinic's um, for, for ex-international you know, elite players, both from the men's game and the women's game. So we've had, a, you know, women obviously coming forward as well, looking for, because I think many people on this on this podcast, listening to this podcast will know that dementia is actually more common 
in women than it is in men. So I think we have to make sure that we've also, you know, you know, almost targeting the women's game uh, as much as the, the men's game. So I just wanted to make that clear on the call. So um, we've introduced a few broad concepts there over the last 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, it might seem a little bit daunting to some people who aren't used to having these kinds of conversations. Um, Craig, you've been involved with Alzheimer's Scotland, Brain Health Scotland, in the creation of a MOOC on sport and exercise for brain health. Um, I wonder if you'd like to signpost our listeners towards that resource um, and what they can look forward to on that. And we'll obviously link to that in the show notes and on social media as well. Yeah, so we, we, we did about two years ago a, a MOOC uh, through Brain Health Scotland for the general public about brain health and dementia prevention. And we found that for something that is perhaps a little more specific to the, the needs of, you know, athletes, coaches, what have you, rather than sort of general information that we're giving to the, to the public. And we built this uh, two-week uh, long course around many of the things we've actually discussed about, you know, an awareness of health literacy, about brain health, about the modifiable risk factors, et cetera. Um, but I think the other thing that is important to emphasize about the MOOC is it's not, it's not just about, you know, head injury and concussion, subconcussive injury is in there as a kind of a, a topic, but we're also maybe sort of talking about the benefits, of course, of sport and exercise on brain health in terms of many things we've mentioned, like diet, exercise, weight, etc. So it's been very well received so far. We've been open about two or three weeks and we've already had about 1,600 um, learners uh, sign up to the course. Um, and I'm glad to say from many, many different parts of the world, I think well over 100 countries um, have been, been learners from. And um, I think we're, we're planning over the next few weeks to translate the narrative into, into French and Spanish to make it even more accessible to, to other parts of the world. So, yeah, it's, it's going well and it's been very well received so far. I can put my hand up, Stefan. I've been through the course. It's excellent. Brilliant. And something, you, and something you'd encourage, not just oh, and, professionals, and, 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 and then, coaches, athletes. Yeah, we, yeah, we've signposted it to all, all, all our staff. I'll be sending out a reminder in the next couple of weeks. Um, for me, it's mandatory. The better we understand the brain and all the aspects that we can do to make it a healthy environment for the brain, the better. Perfect. Well, I think that's a lovely, um, lovely note to finish on. Um, Craig and James, I know you're you're both really busy. Thank you so much for for joining us on this podcast. As I said, we'll signpost people to some of the resources you've mentioned. Obviously, the the Lancet Commission, um, but also then the MOOC and things. And um, I know both of you are are on kind of social media um, in various forms as well. I'm sure our listeners will see will see more coming out around Brain Health Scotland and, and your involvement. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Stefan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this BGSM podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you've got any suggestions or questions, then please get in touch with us via social media or via the usual channels. Have a lovely physically active day.